Welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliadi, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 23, Visions of God. Tonight we're going to discuss visions of God, and preparing this, I've gone through all the scriptures and pulled out some of the main visions, any one that I could find, of which there are a goodly number, and then comparing that with Spencer's vision of the Savior makes it pretty interesting. These visions, are, there are so many kinds of them, and you, you know, you wonder, is there no consistency in these visions? And the Lord visits each person, manifests himself to each one differently. Some appear in dreams, some in outright vision, out of the body. It's all quite complex and mystical or mystifying. So the first one, starting with the Old Testament, the New Testament, Book of Mormon, and so forth, is the Lord appearing, Jehovah appearing to Abraham in the plains of Mamre. And this is just before that Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed and three angels come down, as it says here. As he sat in his tent door in the heat of the day, as he raised his eyes and looked, three men stood near him. So they just stood. All of a sudden, they were there. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from his tent door, bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, speaking to the one, no doubt, that was the leader, if I have found favor in your eyes, don't pass on. I beg you, away from your servant. I beg you, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I guess there's not many trees there because it's mostly desert. So it was nice when there was a tree, and that's where Abraham was known to have camped, was under a big oak tree. I will fetch a morsel of bread, so comfort your hearts, and after that, pass on. Isn't that why you came to your servant? They said, do as you've said. So they couldn't refuse that offer, could they? And there's a tradition of Abraham, a Jewish tradition of Abraham. His tent was open on four sides, so any visitor could always come to partake of his hospitality. And you see that still in the descendants of Abraham in Palestine, Muslims or not, they are so welcoming to visitors. I visited an Arab family in a village in Galilee one time. I met the man. He was a worker on an Israeli kibbutz. The kibbutz where I found the Book of Mormon. And I used to give him blankets and things because his family was poor. So one day I visited their village and he was away, but they killed the chicken. They said they would have killed the goat if, they had, if he had been home. And they, they had the yogurt that they made, and they just did everything that they could. Just amazing hospitality. But some of that tradition from Abraham still carries on to today. Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, prepare three measures of fine meal and eat it, and make cakes on the hearth. And Abraham ran to the herd and brought a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a youth who hurried to dress it. He took butter and milk and the calf he had dressed and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So it says angels, but they ate. So they had bodies, they were physical. And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And she said, he said, well, she's in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door that was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in years, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So she was beyond childbearing age, way past Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, thinking, I've waxed old, can I still have pleasure in my husband being old also? And Jehovah said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, 
Will I, who am old, indeed bear a child? Is anything too hard for Jehovah? You know, that expression, to God all things are possible. At the time appointed, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah will have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I didn't laugh. She was afraid. He said, not so, you did laugh. And the, and the men arose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to escort them on the way. That's also a tradition in Palestine. So the son that they had, of course, was Isaac, Yitzchak. And Yitzchak means he will laugh. So they called him after Sarah laughing. How about that? And then Jehovah said, Shall I hide from Abraham the thing that I do, seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, that all nations of the earth will be blessed in him? For I know that he will command his children and his household after him, and they will keep the way of Jehovah, performing justice and righteousness, so that Jehovah may bring upon Abraham what he has said concerning him. In other words, the promises of the covenant. That he would have a posterity as numerous as the sands of the sea and so forth. And Jehovah said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, their sin being very grievous, I will now go down and see whether they have indeed done according to the report that has come to me about it. If not, I will know. So, at this point, Sodom and Gomorrah is becoming like what scriptures call ripened iniquity, or the fullness of their, their wickedness. I think it speaks of iniquities when, there's a, when it becomes full and the younger generation has nowhere to go out of it because they have no other means of knowing anything better than the Lord makes an end of it. And oddly enough, the preface to the book of Isaiah starts off calling God's people Sodom and Gomorrah and how the woman Zion has turned into a harlot. So the men turned their faces from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood as yet before Jehovah. They need to get clear that, that these three angels, one of them was Jehovah. And two went on to Sodom. And then there's an interval of time where Abraham is arguing with the Lord. It's not, not here. I haven't quoted that. Abraham is conversing with the Lord. You know, if there were 50 righteous men in Sodom, would you... Would you save it? Yes, I would save it. But um, 40, you know, 30, 10, 5, there's not that many even in Sodom. So that Abraham had no, no argument. And Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed as the type and shadow for our day. Isaiah talks about Babylon, which is everything that is not Zion being destroyed to Sodom and Gomorrah in the end time. Abraham returned to his place. And here's that scripture that mentions two angels to Sodom. In the evening, as Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them and bowed himself with his face to, toward the ground. And I think you know the rest of the story, how those, the people of Sodom, the men of Sodom, tried to have intercourse with those two angels. When they were trying to break down the, do the door, the angels smote them with blindness, and they couldn't find the door. So things were that bad. And then we have Jacob in Genesis 32, when Jacob was left alone, that is, when his families, two families, had gone ahead, they came from the area of Damascus back into the Promised Land. He was afraid of Esau, who, from whom he had purchased the birthright for a mess of pottage, which is also a type for our day. There's many selling their birthright now, as you can see. Basically, for what? For nothing. Nothing of worth. So after his family left, he was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak, all night long. A man. That's an angel, too. And when he saw that he didn't prevail, when, when the angel did not prevail against Jacob, he touched the hollow of his thigh, 
So the hall of his, Jacob's thigh became out of joint as he wrestled with him. So he was handicapped from then on. So the Jews today don't eat a shank. It has the tendon that's symbolic of Jacob's incapacitated foot. So the hall of Jacob's thigh became out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day is breaking. The angel says that. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And there's a pattern here, so when the angel appears to you, or someone comes to you in the spirit, never let him go without securing a blessing, right? That's, they come to bless, and they're willing to bless, so don't forget, when they come, just make sure he or she gives you a blessing. Unless you bless me, and he said, what is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, your name will no more be called Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince you have power with God, and with men, and you have prevailed. Well, he prevailed, and wrestling with the angel, but the name Israel means ruling with God, so El is God, right? So Yisra is the verbal form of to rule as a prince. If power with God and with men prevailed, and Jacob asked him, saying, tell me, I beg, I beg you your name. He said, why do you ask my name? And often you'll find that with angels, they don't want to give their name because that's the key word for them, and if you get their name, then they have to come, they have to come to you. So, leave that alone. So he blessed them there, and Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for he said, I've seen God face to face, and my life was preserved. Because usually, if you're not prepared for, for an encounter with the Lord, spiritually, then you can perish in his presence. And even then, his glory often has to overshadow you, otherwise you cannot bear the presence of God. Okay, so we have two instances now of a man, an angel, the angel of Jehovah, he says, he speaks to God face to face, of where the angel is a physical person. In Abraham's case, he also ate food that Sarah prepared. Then we have Exodus and Moses. Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. As he led the flock near to the rear of the desert, he came to the mountain of God, Horeb. Of course, we all think of the Sinai wilderness. Well, that's not where it is at all. It's in the land of Midian, which is the north, northwest Arabian Peninsula, where all the evidences of the, of the Israelites being there uh, is very obvious. And the angel of God appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush, kind of like the pillar of cloud that rests upon a bush. As he looked, the bush burned with fire, but it wasn't consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush isn't burned. And when Jehovah saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. So that indicates that when you see the cloudy pillars, whether any time in the past or in the future, it indicates the presence of the Lord there. Moses, Moses, and he said, I'm here. And he said, don't draw near, take off your shoes from your feet, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. Why? Because the Lord chose to be there, so of course it's holy ground. It's now sanctified. So he took off his shoes out of respect. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Why? Because he might be smitten, again, with blindness or with something. And Jehovah said, I've surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt. They were in bondage to the hard taskmasters under a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. I've heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a goodly and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Prizites, Hivites, and Jebusites, because the iniquity of those people was full, as Nephi talks about in the Book of Mormon, and it was time to clear holy war on them. So it was better to wipe them all out and start fresh than to let any of them continue. And then when Israel is gathered after the Exodus in the Sinai wilderness, well, in the Arabian wilderness, at Jabal el-Laz, which is the mountain that in the northwest uh, peninsula of Arabia is the mountain that's now being determined to be the, the Mount Sinai Horeb. And he says to Moses, come, I come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak to you and believe you forever. Because they were complaining that who's this Moses? You know, he's brought us into this wilderness and he's, we're going to perish in this wilderness because there's no water and da da da. So Moses told the Lord the people's words. And Jehovah said to Moses, go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and be ready the third day. For the third day Jehovah will come down to the eyes of all the people on Mount Sinai. And you must set bounds for the people round about, saying, take heed that you don't go up into the mountain or touch its outer parts. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. Because the Lord's coming down in, in his might, in power, with a great display of power, as we'll see in a moment. No hand must touch it, or he must be stoned or shot through. Whether that actually happened, we don't know. It's not mentioned. Whether beast, but similar things happened later, indeed. Whether beast or man, they cannot live. When the trumpet sounds long, or the shofar, the ram's horn, they must come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. So this was a time of repentance for them and purifying themselves physically as well as spiritually, the physical preparation being an outward form of their spiritual preparation. And he said to the people, be prepared for the third day. Don't be with your wives. So they had to sacrifice their spousal relationships. It came to pass on the morning of the third day that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Now what is going on here is that to these Israelites, God had to reveal them because they were such a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people and they were continuously rebelling and heckling Moses. So he had to reveal himself in this great display of power. So, so to the Israelites, he was this larger-than-life reality, right? But not to Moses, not to Moses himself or to the elect of God. He never appears to them like this. So he's, he's adapting his manifestation of himself according to their circumstances. And that's what is characteristic of all of these visions of God. He adapts his manifestation of himself according to all these people's circumstances and things that they can relate to, something that is needed at the time. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the lower part of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was altogether on smoke because Jehovah had descended upon it in a fire. Now, this may seem like a volcano or something, but it's not so likely, I would say, but it probably would resemble something like that. And smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the sound of the trumpet sounded long and grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by a voice. Have you noticed now there are sounds out there that are recorded, and you can find them on YouTube. They're amazing sounds. They sound like trumpets. These sound nobody knows where they're coming from, and they're very, very loud. And they're all over the world. And when the sound of the trumpet sounded louder and grew, sounded long and grew louder and louder, Moses spoke 
and God answered him by a voice. And Jehovah came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and Jehovah called Moses up to the top of the mountain, so Moses went up. So God actually comes down. It wasn't just a volcano and da-da-da. God actually comes down, and he talks to Moses at the top of the mountain. Okay, so after this scene, there's another scene where Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel, that is, on Mount Sinai. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and as it were, the vault of heaven and its brilliance. So you see that the Lord was in a different dimension, and he appeared to them as such. He wasn't in, in this terrestrial world. And others have seen similar things. In this case, it's like the sapphire stone. But they could see the vault of heaven, and they could see all the cosmos as they were visiting with him. Upon the nobles of the people of Israel, he didn't lay his hand, which means that he must have laid his hand on somebody, maybe Moses, some of the others. But they saw God and ate and drank. Now, whether the Lord also ate and drank, doesn't say. But they did, and I wonder what they ate and drank. What do you think? What comes to mind? Sacrament. Bread and, bread and wine. And where did that come from? Well, maybe they brought it with them, or maybe the Lord provided so here you have another instance then of the Israelites, you know, to them the Lord is larger than life, but to the elders or the more noble ones, they actually were the elect of God because they were brought into God's presence physically as well as spiritually. So they were on an elect level, on a celestial level, these men were. And then you have Moses, in many encounters with the Lord, sees God face to face. Of course, he has power over the elements, so he has, he's a translator being like Elijah. Moses and Elijah, the two counselors of Jehovah. And maybe it was Moses and Elijah who came with Jehovah to, to visit Abraham. Possibly. Likely, even. So, the Lord manifests himself according to the spiritual level of the people. That is the formula here. Now, this is not a vision. Judges 4, 1-23, but why am I quoting this? Because there's always a backstory to these visions, and it's not always spoken. Okay, so this man has a vision of God, but who's his wife? And what influence did she have on him? And here we see a classic example of how a woman empowers a man. How can a man be a deliverer if he's not empowered to be a deliverer? And who's he empowered by? His wife. So he becomes a deliverer, first of all, of his wife and children, besides others to whom he, whom he may be a deliverer of also. Deborah did that for, for Barak. People of Israel again did evil in the eyes of Jehovah after Ehud was dead. Ehud was one of the judges in Israel. So this is from the book of Judges. Remember that when Israel came into the promised land and they inherited it. There was a time called the reign of the judges. But during that time, every man started doing what was right in his own eyes. And they forgot about the terms of the covenant, the Sinai covenant. And so there was time after time they were subjected to their enemies. And the Lord sent deliverers to deliver them. But nobody had ever come along to lead the entire nation of Israel. Not until Saul and David. And that was the first time that Israel, as a nation, banded together and overthrew their enemies. But until then, it was just this judge or that judge, Samson, whoever. Samuel was the last judge in Israel. He was the one who anointed King David. And Jehovah sold him into the hand of Yabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Chatzor, the captain of whose army was Sisera, who lived in Chawasid of the Gentiles. In other words, the larger area of land there. 
The people of Israel cried to Jehovah, for he had 900 iron chariots, and 20 years he had greatly oppressed the people of Israel. And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, judged Israel at that time. So who's Devorah or Deborah? She's a prophetess. So how did she become a prophetess? Well, the way anybody becomes a prophetess or a prophet, and that is to have a, a manifestation of the Lord, and when the Spirit of the Lord rests upon them, then they can prophesy or they can judge in Israel and discern better than everybody else. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah. Again, there's a palm tree here, an oak tree there. There's not a whole lot of foliage. Of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in Mount Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. And she sent a call for Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Hasn't Jehovah, the God of Israel, come out and saying, Go and approach Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men of the people of Naphtali and the people of Zvulun, Zebulun. So, again, he's able to, to rally, you know, the people of his own clan, basically. Naphtali is, is his tribe, and the people of Zebulun were closely allied with Naphtali, so he got them too. And I will lure to you at the Kishon River, Caesarea, captain of Jabin's army and his chariots and multitude, and deliver him into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. <laughs> but if, if you will not go with me, I won't go. So he, instead of kind of taking responsibility, he depended, he was codependent on Deborah still. And she said, I will certainly go with you, but the journey you take won't be in your honor. Could have been, for Jehovah will sell Sarah into the hand of a woman. So this is where women in this this scripture, women really come to the fore. And shows you, should inspire women because women have power. So own it. Exercise it. Right? Who's telling you that? Is anybody telling you that these days? <laughs> so Deborah arose and went to Barak to Kedesh. And Barak caused Walun and Naphtali to Kedesh and went up with 10,000 men at his feet. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite was of the people of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, that would be Jethro, another name for him, had severed himself from the Kenites, who were Israelites, and pitched his tent toward the plain of Zanaim, which is by Kedesh, and they showed Caesarea that Barak, they did, they were spies for Caesarea, who was the, the host, you know, the captain of the Canaanites. Showed Caesarea that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, so Caesarea gathered all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people with him, from Chorosot of the Gentiles toward the Kishon River. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this day, <laughs> this is the day Jehovah has delivered Caesarea into your hand. Hasn't Jehovah gone forth ahead of you? Aha, that is the key right there. If Jehovah goes forth ahead of you, it's a sure deal. Right? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And Jehovah discomfited Caesarea and all his chariots and army with the edge of the sword before Barak. So that Caesarea alighted from his chariot and fled on foot. Likely they were in a swamp, because that's near the Jordan Valley, I mean the Jezreel Valley. And it was a swamp off and on. The, the Jews, when they returned, bought it from an Arab clan and drained the swamp, and it's become one of the most choice productive lands in, in Israel right now. But it was a, it was a malaria-ridden swamp when the Jews first came to, to settle the land of Israel in the modern era. But Barak pursued after the chariots, because that's where the most of the army 
went, and after the army of to Chalosan of the Gentiles, and all of Sisera's army fell to the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. So, and these were spies, right? They were allied with the enemy. For there was peace between Yabin, king of Chatzor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Yael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn in, my lord. Turn in to me. Don't be afraid. Huh. She was not necessarily going along with her husband. And when he had turned into her, in the tent she covered him with a mantle. And he said to her, Give me, I beg you, a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him to drink and covered him. He was probably hypoglycemic, and so she gave him milk, which made him go fast asleep. And he again said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires after you, of you, saying, Is any man here? You'll say, No. Then Yael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and a hammer in her hand, went softly to him and smote the nail into his temples and fastened it in the ground, where he was in a deep sleep and weary, and so he died. How about that? Could any of you do that? I mean, you may have to someday do something just like that. So, the parasols, and then you've got to be valiant, right? And that can require all kinds of things. And while Barak pursued Sisera, Yael came to meet him and said to him, Come, I'll show you the man whom you seek. And when he came into her tent, Sisera lay dead, the nail in his temples. So on that day, God subdued Yabin, king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. A great day for women, right? Wow. Okay, you'll have to figure things out for yourself there. Otherwise, I might be preaching false doctrine or something. Judges 6. The angel of Jehovah came, again, who's the angel of Jehovah? Is it Jehovah? Seems like it, doesn't it? Came and sat under an oak in Ophrah that belonged to Yoash, the Abi Israelite. And uh, so again, there's an oak, a big oak. And that's where people have their tents and that's where they stay, in the shade. It's hot. While his son Gideon, or Gideon, threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of Jehovah appeared to him and said, Jehovah is with you. Why? Oh, if you ever get a message like that, God is with you. That's key. That's total empowerment. And you can just trust in it and, and go forth like Gideon did. You mighty man of valor. I guess Gideon needed a little encouragement, you know, to up his confidence. And Gideon said to him, Oh my Lord, if Jehovah is with us, why has all this befallen us? And where are all these miracles which our fathers told of, saying, Did not Jehovah bring us up out of Egypt? But now Jehovah has forsaken and delivered us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And Jehovah looked upon him and said, Who's looking upon, who, who's looking upon him? The angel of Jehovah. Who is? Jehovah. And said, Go in this your might, and you will save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. See, obviously empowered him right there. In this your might the might that he just endowed him with. And save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So when you're sent, that's what the word apostle means. It's one sent personally of the Lord, or supposed to be. And he said to him, O oh my Lord, with what shall I save Israel? See, my family is poor in Manasseh. He's, see, these people feel so inadequate. Have you noticed? Everybody the Lord um, points Moses included. They all say, Enoch, everybody, I'm just a little guy. Who, who am I? 
I'm nobody. Why, why choose me? My family is poor in Manasseh, the tribe of Manasseh, and I'm the least of my father's house. And Jehovah said to him, Surely I'll be with you, and you will smite the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, Why, what, you know, why does that happen? When the Lord goes before you and prepares the way, why do all these people suddenly take fright? Because something, when the Lord goes before you, something spooks them. And they all run scared all of a sudden, every one of them. And then they're easy to get rid of. Surely I'll be with you, will smite the Midianites as one man. He said to him, if I, now I have found a grace in your eyes, then show me a sign that you're talking with me. Depart not from me, I beg you, until I come and bring you my present and set it before you. So is asking for the sign indicate that he's an adulterous man? That's what the scriptures say, right? Those who seek a sign are an adulterous generation. Well, I look at it differently. In this case, I look at it as a confirmation. He's just asking for confirmation. And that happens a lot. It happens in Isaiah. And, and the Lord gives the confirmation without any qualms. And he said, I will tarry until he returns. So Gideon went in and made ready a kid. See? Hospitality. And unleavened cakes out of an ephah flour. The flesh he put in the basket and the broth in a pot. And he brought it out to him under the oak and presented it. And the angel of God said to him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. And so he did. Then the angel of Jehovah put forth the end of his staff that was in his hand. So you know, the staff is a physical thing. So his hand is physical. It's, he's in a body. Jehovah's in a body. Again, third time or more. And touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes and there arose fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of Jehovah departed out of his sight. He didn't say walked away, he just said departed out of his sight. When Gideon perceived that it was an angel of Jehovah, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen an angel of Jehovah face to face. And Jehovah said to him, I guess in the spirit, Peace be to you, don't be afraid, you won't die. And then we have King Solomon. And like King David, his father, he had made sure his calling election, and here is an instance of it. He saw Jehovah. King David fell from his exaltation, DNC 132, which means he had his exaltation. And Gibeon, Jehovah, appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I will give you. And Solomon said, I've showed you your servant, David, my father. You have showed your servant, David, my father, great mercy. According to as he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and uprightness of heart with you. And you have reserved for him this great kindness. And kindness is a synonymous is synonymous with covenant blessings in Hebrew theology. In that you have given him a son to sit on his throne, which is a covenant blessing to have posterity, as it is today. And he's and the fact that he Solomon would refer to his father David, not first to himself, is pretty amazing. He's a humble man. Now Jehovah my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David. Now I am but a little child. See, everybody feels so inadequate. And we are, we are all so inadequate. When you think about it. But also think of this, that when the Lord empowers you, then you can do all things that are expedient in Christ, as Nephi says. doesn't matter what it is. You can do it. I don't know how to go out or come in before his people. He doesn't know how to behave himself. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people that can't be numbered nor counted for multitude. So he feels a little overwhelmed. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people so that I may discern between good and evil. <clears throat> For who is able to judge this so great a people of yours? 
And the speech pleased the Lord in that Solomon had asked this thing and not something personal or selfish or something to boost his ego. And God said to him, Because you've asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, neither asked for riches for yourself, nor asked the life of your enemies, and have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice, see, I've done this thing according to your words. I've given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like you before you, neither will there arise any like you after you. And I've also given you what you haven't asked for, both riches and honor. You know, that could be a curse, but I don't think the Lord would curse him if he was a righteous man. Both riches and honor, so that there won't be any among you, uh, any among the kings like you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways to keep my statutes and commandments as your father David did, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. But of course it was real. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant, that was in the temple that Solomon built, where the Ark of the Covenant was housed after the temple was built, and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings, and he made a feast for all his servants. See, there again, see, he's, he's looking out for, for his people. And then this is Isaiah's vision of the Lord. In the year of King Uzziah's death, that was about 742 B.C., King Uzziah, Uzziah had leprosy. I saw my Lord seated on the throne, highly exalted, the skirt of his robe filling the sanctuary. The sanctuary, so he's in, he's in the sanctuary, not through the veil, but in that part. That is just in front of the veil. Seraphs stood by him overhead, each having six wings, or veils, or energy fields, I would say. With two, they could veil their presence. With two, conceal their location. And with two, fly about. In other words, they could move by the power of teleportation or thought, as any translated being can. And they have power over the elements. And this is the next level. This is the level of translated beings who surround the throne of God. They called out to one another and said, Most holy is Jehovah of hosts. Now the Hebrew says holy, 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 but that's just a superlative. Is holy, more holy, and most holy. And that's the way the Hebrews expressed it. Like woe, a curse. Woe, woe, a double curse. And woe, 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 the utmost curse. Most holy is Jehovah of hosts, the consummation of all the earth is his glory. The King James probably mistranslates this. So the bringing to pass of the whole earth's journey through its existence from celestial through terrestrial to celestial, where it's the whole plan of salvation is consummated, that is his glory. It's to bring to pass the eternal life and exaltation of man, his God's children. That's his glory. He glorifies himself in that, and they are glorified in him. The threshold shook to its foundation at the sound of those who called, and the mist filled the temple. They spoke in unison by the Holy Spirit, and because they had power over the elements, everything shook, but probably just locally there, and nothing was damaged, and maybe nobody else even heard it. Then I thought it was said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I've been struck dumb. So he was actually vocally impaired at that moment, seeing the Lord. So impairments do happen. We'll see later in another instance. For I'm a man of unclean speech, and I live among a people of unclean speech. Why does he say that? Now this is written after the fact, after sometime later. So he's identifying himself closely with his people, 
who are unclean. In fact, they're way unclean. This is the time of God's judgment among them. But he still identifies himself with them, kind of like Mormon, sticks with the Nephites all the way to the very end. And he's willing to take their burdens upon himself, even to the very end. I've seen the king, Jehovah of hosts, with my own eyes. Then one of the servants flew to me carrying an ember which had taken the tongs from the altar, that is, the altar of atonement. And who atones? Christ does. He's Jehovah in his mortality, or in his mortal sphere. An ember signifies the purification happens through the atonement of Christ. Touching it to my mouth, he said, See, this is touch your lips, your sins are taken away, your transgressions are over. So the ember is symbolic of his spiritual cleansing, being forgiven of his transgressions. Then I heard the voice of my Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Like he sent the other person? One who is sent? If he sends you, you better go, right? Who will go for us? And who's us? The gods. And I replied, Here am I, send me. So his whole heart was, he was a righteous man who wanted to serve God, probably from his youth. He's probably very young right here, because he has another 50 years before he dies at the hands of Manasseh, king of Judah, son of King Hezekiah. And he said, the Lord said, Go, go, that's your commission. And say to these people, not to say to my people, but these people? So it's kind of a, you know, this is dissociating himself from these people? Not using the covenant formula. He says, these people, or this people. He disavows himself from them because they're in a state of wickedness. Go on hearing but not understanding. Go on seeing but not perceiving. So they hear and they see, and just like today, in the media. But not perceiving, make the heart of these people grow fat or dull, dull their ears and shut their eyes. And then we have this amazing formula for salvation. Seeing with the eyes, hearing with the ears, understanding with the heart, and repenting and being healed. Because healing is synonymous with salvation. Lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and repent and be healed. Because when the iniquity of a people is full or nearly full, you think that they're going to welcome this, you know, this prophet who's going to call them to repentance? Of course not. What will they do? They will harden their hearts against him all the more, against God. And they'll get rid of him, like they did Isaiah and other prophets. But there's still the, the opening, there's still the invitation to see with the eyes, hear with the ears, understand with your heart, repent and be healed. You might finally get it, but as we see, it's only an individual here and an individual there. This is in the New Testament, Acts. This is Paul speaking. As also the high priest bears me witness, he's speaking after the fact of his being thrown off the horse on, on the road to Damascus. And the entire body of elders whom I also received letters to the, from whom I also received letters to the brethren. Brethren where? Damascus. And I went to Damascus to bring them, that's the, uh, the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem, those who were bound there to Jerusalem to be punished because they believed in Jesus. That was their transgression. So Paul was very zealous for Jehovah to bring those people to trial and punish them. I came to pass that as I took my journey and arrived near Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone a great light around me from heaven. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Shaul, 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 why do you persecute me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecute. So you see how Jesus identifies himself to all those who suffer for him, for his sake. What you have done to these, to these the least of my brethren, you have done to me. Remember that? 
And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, the people who accompanied Paul to Damascus, but they didn't hear the voice of he who spoke to me. So they just saw the light, but they didn't hear the rest, because he was speaking to Paul only. And I said, what must I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there it will be told you all things that are appointed for you to do. And when I couldn't see because of the glory of that light, so he was struck blind, like Isaiah was struck dumb. Because the Lord wanted to impress him with his, with his glory, and so that he, you know, he would realize this was God, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Lord, Christ, was Jehovah. Being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus, and one Ananias, that's uh, the Greek version of Anania, which means um, Jehovah answered, or heard and answered. A devout man according to the law, that's the law of Moses, having a good report of all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul. So he, at this point, of course, was um, converted to Christ. And, and so he, he probably had seen the Lord himself because he's prophesying now. Brother Saul, receive your sight. And the same hour I looked upon him. So he, he received his sight back. And he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see that just one and hear the voice of his mouth. So likely he himself, Ananias, had seen the just one. And he could say this to Paul with some kind of surety because he had received a revelation about Paul. Kind of like Amulek in the Book of Mormon who receives Alma the Younger into his house. And an angel apprised him beforehand that, that Alma was coming. He extended his hospitality to him. So it is here. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you tearing? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. It came to pass when I returned to Jerusalem, even as I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. So now Paul has his own vision of the Lord. And I saw him, the Lord, and say to me, hurry and get yourself quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat every synagogue those who believed on you. And when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, I also stood by consenting to his death. And I kept the garments of those who slew him. And he said to me, depart, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So there we have a clue. He's not one of the twelve apostles in Jerusalem, but he's going to be sent to the Gentiles as an apostle to them. Then we have visions in the Book of Mormon. First Nephi 1, Lehi's vision. It came to pass in the commencement of the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, my father Lehi, having dwelt in Jerusalem all his days, in that same year there came many prophets prophesying unto the people they must repent or the great city of Jerusalem must be destroyed. Well, we know of Jeremiah for sure, but there were others, no doubt, and some of them were stoned and put to death likely. But they were all preaching the same thing. Which means that at this point in time, Jerusalem was ripening in iniquity, and it was about to be destroyed. Because that's the only time when the Lord destroys people, or a city, or a place. Wherefore it came to pass that my father Lehi, as he went forth, prayed unto the Lord, even with all his heart on behalf of his people. So here we have him acting in the, the form of a proxy savior, really, as an intercessor for his own people like Moses and like many others 
to whom the Lord manifests himself. And those are the kind of people that the Lord manifests himself to. So there's a little bit of a backstory here that you can emulate if you want a visitation from the Lord and do the things that Lehi did, right? Then he will manifest himself to you. I assure you that he will. It's as sure as can be. With all his heart on behalf of his people. It came to pass that as he prayed unto the Lord, there came a pillar of fire and dwelt upon a rock before him. And he saw and heard much. And because of the things which he saw and heard, he did quake and tremble exceedingly. It came to pass that he was scared to death by the horrible things that he saw that would soon come to pass, right? It came to pass that he returned to his own house at Jerusalem and he cast himself upon his bed. He was so overcome with the spirit of the things which he had seen. And being thus overcome with the spirit, he was carried away in a vision. Even that he saw the heavens open and he thought he saw, what, he thought he saw? God sitting upon his throne, surrounded with numberless concourses of angels in the attitude of singing and praising their God. Well, I reckon that he actually did see it. But why does it say he thought he saw it? Because he might have been too humble to say that, lest he should be considered, you know, presumptive. And you know, you have the same reaction to Spencer with visions of glory. People saying to him, who do you think you are? And he just says, I don't think I'm anybody. I'm just as surprised as anybody else. With numberless concourses of angels, seraphim and others, in the attitude of singing and praising their God. Because they are so excited to do that. They are so full of spontaneity to sing and praise God. And then there are different spiritual levels doing so too. And as you go down to the lower levels, their, their enthusiasm wanes a little bit. <laughs> Up there in the highest levels, it's really intense. You see that in the book of Enoch too. Read of that. The book of Enoch, get it, is so amazing. It's, it's about our day. And it came to pass that he saw one descending out, you know who that one is, the Lord, Christ, descending out of the midst of heaven, and beheld that his luster was above that of the sun at noonday. He also, he also saw twelve others following him, twelve apostles, and their brightness did exceed that of the stars of the firmament. This is very Jewish, right? It's very Jewish-oriented, because these apostles and Christ are going to come to his nation, the nation of the Jews. And they came down and went forth upon the face of the earth, so he's having a vision of the mission of Christ on the earth and of the apostles. And the first came and stood before my father and gave unto him a book and bade him that he should read. It came to pass that as he read, he was filled with the spirit of the Lord. Kind of like John the Revelator gets a book and others get books. It's one of the ways the Lord manifests himself. But what is this book? Well, it's kind of like a download, right? It's like a computer download where you're given all this information all at once. It's not, you know, you eat, you eat the book in some case, and the book is assimilated. All this download of information and, and knowledge and understanding is given you. Boom, all at once. Now, how can he come to him after he comes upon the face of the earth, and they come with him, and then he comes to him, to Lehi, and says, read? And what book is it anyway? Well, it could be many books or uh, visions or prophecies out of books. But it certainly pertains to Lehi's day. So what did Jehovah do? What did Christ do? Did he go back through a time lapse and come to Lehi? I mean, those are things to think about. He was filled with the Spirit of the Lord. So now it seems like he has this gift of the Spirit as a permanent gift because of his visitation with the Lord. 
And he read, saying, Woe, woe unto Jerusalem, for, or curse, curse, for I've seen thine abominations. He didn't believe it. Because a lot of these things are done in secret, right? But now he saw it all. Yet many things did my father read concerning Jerusalem that it should be destroyed, and the inhabitants thereof. Many should perish by the sword, and many should be carried away captive into Babylon. It came to pass that my father had read and seen. So as he read it, he saw it. It unfolded before him as he read it, as he read the book. And that's when you have these spiritual experiences, as Spencer does, and as Moses does, and you, you see it happening before your eyes, as John does. Many great and marvelous things. Why use the words great and marvelous thing there? Because the great and marvelous work of the Lord is an end time work, right? Which is the restoration of the house of Israel by definition in the Book of Mormon and in Isaiah. So whenever it uses these terms, then it's some kind of prefiguring or foreshadowing of the great and marvelous work that's spoken of in the end time. Because the Jews are very careful about how they use terminology but they can't call one thing great and marvelous. The manner of the Jews forbids that if it doesn't cohere with something else that's great and marvelous. So what this seems like to me is maybe a type of the servant coming, and he's given a vision of the great and marvelous work, and then he performs the great and marvelous work, which is to restore the house of Israel and the 144,000 with him. They all perform this great and marvelous work in the end time. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. Well, the Lord has many great and marvelous works. And as John says, if you could see all the great and marvelous works of the Lord, the earth would not be big enough to receive all the books written. Really? Yeah. Because the Lord has done many great and marvelous works throughout the eternities. Thy throne is high in the heavens, and thy power and goodness and mercy are over all the inhabitants of the earth. So it tells you that the power is used in a good way. It's associated with goodness and mercy. And because thou art merciful, thou wilt not suffer that those who come unto thee, they shall perish. So he always prepares a way of escape for the elect. Through all the collective destructions that happen because of collective guilt, he prepares a way for individuals to come out of it. Those who come unto thee. We come unto Christ, come unto salvation, we come unto the truth, come unto the light, come unto life everlasting. He's, he personifies all those things. Eleven ten, one through eleven. There came, came to pass there arose a division among the people, insomuch that they divided hither and thither and went their ways, leaving Nephi alone as he was standing in the midst of them. It came to pass that Nephi went his way toward his own house, pondering upon the things which the Lord had shown unto him. He came to pass, as he was thus pondering, being much cast down because of the wickedness of the people of the Nephites, their secret works of darkness and their murdering and their plundering and all manner of iniquities, he came to pass, as he was thus pondering in his heart, behold, a voice came unto him, saying, Blessed art thou, Nephi, for those things which thou hast done. So this is just a voice, but it's important because, because both seeing and hearing it are integral parts of visions. And he's being blessed in a specific way, which is power of translated beings, which we'll see in a moment. I beheld how thou hast with unwillingness declared the word which I have given unto thee, unto this people, and thou hast not feared them, and hast not sought thine own life, but hast sought my will to keep my, and to keep my commandments. So there you have it. There you have really the formula for becoming translated. And Nephi, the son of Helena, is this great example. 
So he's carried repentance all the way to the utmost level, where all he's doing is seeking God's will, nothing else. He's totally sacrificed his own will. Even his life, he's willing to give it up in an instant. He's already determined, predetermined that. So he'll keep the commandments of the Lord at all costs. Now, because thou hast done this, and of course those commandments can be the written commandments, also, you know, commandments, commandments that are given on the way, on your, spontaneously by the Lord, specific to you at any given moment. That is something that's written, necessarily. Like Nephi, turning later, whatever it might be. Now, because thou hast done this with such unwariness, so, he never gives up. I will bless thee forever. I'll make thee mighty in word and in deed, in faith and in works. Yet even all things shall be done unto thee according to thy word. For thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to thy will. So after he becomes an elect or a celestial person, he no longer asking anything that's not appropriate. He knows by the Spirit what to ask for. That's what he asks for, not something else. So he only does that which is God's will. Behold, thou art Nephi, and I am God. This is a very formal situation now. And behold, I declare it unto thee in the presence of my angels. You shall have power over this people, and shall smite the earth with famine, with pestilence, and destruction according to the wickedness of this people. According to his will, according to Nephi, the son of Helaman's will, which is God's will, because the two wills are one in his life. So the two things here are, two main things are serving God with unawareness and doing his will and not even fearing his own life. So he's offered his life a long time ago before this point in time. He's kept making true and good decisions and finally he reaches a point where it levels out and he's blessed with the ceiling ground. I give unto you power that whatsoever you shall seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven, and whatsoever shall be, you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, and thus shall you have power among those people. And this is typical of all translated beings. And thus, if you shall say unto this temple, it shall be rent twain, it shall be done. If you shall say unto this mountain, be thou cast down, and become smooth, it shall be done. And behold, if you shall say that God shall smite this people, it shall come to pass. And now, behold, I command you that you shall go and declare unto this people, but thus said the Lord God, who is the Almighty, except you repent, you shall be smitten even unto destruction. Again, have you noticed the pattern now that that the Lord, when the people are about to be destroyed, that is when the time, that is the time when the Lord calls people, prophets. That is the time when he appears to them, to certain elect among them. But does it make sense that the entire people should be wicked and there should be these really righteous men among them? Here and there? Why? Because of the opposition, right? The opposition gets greater and greater as people turn more and more evil. And so these, these righteous few, they have to rise above the evil and keep up with it. So that there's a balance. And that, when the iniquity of the people is full, and they're about to be destroyed, that is when the Lord calls individuals. So we can, we can follow the same pattern in the end time. One situation among us here today gets to this point, you can be sure the Lord is going to call prophets. 
It's like in Jerusalem. Many prophets came and predicted the destruction, not just one. I can't be positive in a fourth oh, this is Brother Jared now, I'm jumping to Ezer to Ezer too. So anything any questions about Nephi the son of Helaman? Here, here's a there are not many backstories to people getting translated, but Nephi the son of Helaman is one. So it's about it's valuable for us to take into account how the process works. You know that every translated person has some kind of backstory like this. It doesn't just happen. We came to pass that in the four years, this is after the Jaredites make their journey into the wilderness and leave, leave Babel, the child Babel of Babylon, same word in Hebrew, that the Lord came again unto the brother of Jared and stood in the cloud and talked with him. For the space of three hours did the Lord talk with the brother of Jared and chasing him, because he remembered not to call upon the name of the Lord. So probably on the journey they settled somewhere for a while and took kind of a respite and then they got a little too comfortable and they didn't finish the journey. What does that tell you? We need to finish the journey. We need to finish our individual journeys, right? It also tells you that the brother of Jared had been calling upon the name of the Lord a lot. The brother of Jared repented of the evil which he had done and did call upon the name of the Lord for his brethren who were with him. And that's the key right there, for his brethren who were with him was their proxy savior. He was, he was never just praying for himself, he was always praying on behalf of others, right, from the, from the get-go. That's why this treatment with him. That was the evil, he wasn't fulfilling his proxy role, he got lazy. And the Lord said unto him, I will forgive thee and thy brethren of their sins, Thou shalt not sin anymore. So that was a sin. For you shall remember that my spirit will not always strive with man. You know, I can strive with you for a while, but if you're not going to yield, then I'm just going to move on to somebody else. And when the spirit is taken from a man who once had the spirit, watch out. That's a, a very undesirable situation. You never want to get into that. Therefore, if you will sin until you are fully ripe, you shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. So all these terms you know, that are used in the scripture of being cut off from the presence of the Lord tells you that that only happens when the people are fully wiped in iniquity. So 3 Nephi 21, which we read the other day, right, when the servant makes forth the words of Christ, or in the large place of Nephi, and many re reject the words of Christ that the servant makes forth, and they are cut off from among the people of the covenant. means they are fully wiped in iniquity. Who are they? Well, right here in Happy Valley, the next valley, among the covenant people of the Lord. We came to pass of the brother of Jared, of a number of the vessels which had been prepared with eight, went forth unto the mount. This is from Ether 3, which they called the Mount Shelem because of its exceeding height, and did molten out of a rock 16 small stones, and they were white and clear, even as transparent glass. And he carried them in his hands upon the top of the mountain and cried again unto the Lord, saying. So where did he get the idea, do you think, to do these the smelting of sixteen stones? And you know how you know what temperature these things smell at? Twenty seven hundred degrees Fahrenheit, quartzite. That's very hot, a very high temperature for Sirstar. Not many furnaces today do that. 
saying, I reckon he must have got this idea from Noah because Noah's ark was also enclosed, right? So likely he there was a precedent for it and he just simply knew what Noah had done and duplicated it. Although thou said that we must be encompassed about by the floods, now behold, O Lord, do not be angry with thy servant because of his weakness before thee. So he also feels himself weak. Well, aren't we all weak? We realize we are nothing before the Lord. For we know that thou art holy and dwellest in the heavens, and that we are unworthy before thee because of the fall our natures have become evil continually. So we always have this evil propensity to be tempted, to choose, choose the wrong, to think unbecoming things, to speak unbecoming words and actions and so on. Nevertheless, O Lord, thou hast given us a commandment that we must call upon thee, that from thee we may receive according to our desires. So there is a beautiful redeeming factor to the fact that we're a fallen man or fallen woman, but the answer is to call upon him and receive direction from him and empowerment from him. And that we may receive according to our desires. So the Lord takes into account our personal desires. So we may submit our will to God and seek only to do His will, but we still have personal desires. Sometimes we may be afraid to bring them up, but He knows our hearts. Sometimes you may feel presumptuous if you mention the things that you would like, but He knows our hearts. God really. Heavenly Father really does want to, to fulfill our righteous desires. He really does. And he does. He does so marvelously, and when it happens, it's just like astounding. Behold, O Lord, thou hast smitten us because of our iniquity and has driven us forth. For these many years we've been in the wilderness. Don't you think that wilderness got kind of old for them? You know, all that time away from civilization and trying to make it through the hard difficult times and terrain. Nevertheless, thou hast been merciful unto us, O Lord, look upon me in pity and turn away thine anger from this thy people, again pleading for his people, and suffer not, they shall go forth across this raging deep in darkness, to hold these things which are molten out of the rock. And I know, O Lord, thou hast all power to do whatsoever thou wilt for the benefit of man. That is, that is what God does. He does everything for the benefit of man. Therefore, touch these stones, and Lord, lift thy finger, and prepare them, that they may shine forth in darkness. They shall shine forth unto us in the vessels which we have prepared. So he's done He's done his part, so now the Lord needs to do his part, right? And the Lord does, he always comes through. That we may have light when we cross the sea. Behold, the Lord, thou canst do this. So he has faith in the Lord, and the Lord can do it. That's important. Number Ether 4, where Moroni speaking to the Gentiles and said, If the Gentiles become clean before the Lord and exercise faith like unto the brother of Jared and become sanctified before the Lord, he will show them all things he showed the brother of Jared. Well, what is one of the things the Lord, that the brother of Jared did that showed them his faith? Faith by his works, right? His works were to make these stones, to build the barges. That's all based on faith. As James says, Show me your faith without works. It's nothing. Your work manifests your faith. Thou canst do this. We know that thou art able to show forth great power, which looks small unto the understanding of men. Sometimes when things happen that the Lord does, it seems hardly imperceptible. It's just like, 
No, that's just that just happened. It's natural or something. No, it was something major. It looks small. It came to pass that when Brother Jared had said these words, behold, the Lord stretched forth his hand and touched stones one by one with his finger. And the veil was taken off from his eyes of the brother Jared, and he saw the finger of the Lord, it was as the finger of a man, like unto flesh and blood. And the brother Jared fell down before the Lord, but was struck with fear. Natural reaction when you see God, never knew him before, like that. And the Lord saw the brother Jared fallen to the earth, and the Lord said unto him, Arise, why hast thou fallen? Well, it's obvious, the Lord knew. And he said unto the Lord, I saw the finger of the Lord, and I feared lest it should smite me. For I knew not that the Lord had flesh and blood. So did the Lord have flesh and blood, in this case? Well, how come he appeared to Abraham in the body and ate and drank? And Moses? How come he wrestled with Jacob? He didn't have a body? And the Lord said unto him, Because of thy faith thou hast seen that I shall take upon me flesh and blood. And never has man come before me with such exceeding faith as thou hast. For were it not so, he could not have seen my fingers. Sawest thou more than this? He answered, Nay, Lord, show thyself unto me. And the Lord said unto him, Believest thou the words which I shall speak? Ah, so he wants to get a commitment from him before he does that. And he answered, Yea, Lord, thou knowest, I know that thou speakest the truth, for thou art a God of truth, and canst not lie. And when he had said these words, behold, the Lord showed himself unto him, and said, Because thou knowest these things, you are redeemed from the fall. So he's seen the Lord, his nature is calling election, he's redeemed from, from the fall. Well, even terrestrial people are redeemed from the fall, but not, they're not yet exalted. So in this case, the brother Jared ascended at least to the, to the sea last two level. So let's talk about from, from a little bit about, you know, the Lord didn't have a body before he came, or did he? He appeared to Abraham to Moses and to Jacob and others in the body. So how do you solve that disconnect? This is what you call a paradox, right? In scripture. And there's truth to be had from solving the paradox, right? Like Joseph Smith said, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. By showing there's really no contradiction um, when you're able to harmonize the two. So now, how do you know the Lord didn't have a body before he came? How do you know this is not a holograph of the Lord and his body is somewhere else? Well, how do you know that the Lord didn't go back in time when he had a body and went back in time to Abraham? I mean, how do you know the workings of the Lord? I really don't know very much, but there is an answer, I assure you. Maybe you'll come to it yourself. Therefore you are brought back into my presence, therefore I show myself unto you. Behold, I am he who is prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. From the foundation of the world to redeem his people, well, many of us are prepared from the foundation of the world to do something, like the brother Jared, for example. I am Jesus Christ, I am the Father and the Son. Now how can we, how can we be both the Father and the Son? Abinadi also said that, right? He said, the Holy One of Israel will come to earth and take upon him the form of man, our flesh, and uh, he is both the Father and the Son. When I first read that in the Book of Mormon, I thought, that doesn't make sense. One is a contradiction of the other. But no, because of the hierarchy of Father-Son relationships, all the way up the spiritual ladder, 
He's the son to the son of the Most High God, but he's father to us. And as we ascend the spiritual ladder, we also become sons of the Most High God. So it, it works out. There's no contradiction. In me shall all mankind have life, and that eternally. Even they who shall believe on my name, and they shall become my sons and daughters. Now, we become the sons and daughters. Well, aren't we already the sons and daughters because we're the children of God? No, there's specific terminology used. In the book of Isaiah, the sons and daughters of Jehovah are the elect of God. The elect. It's a definition of the elect. And then you have Moses, my son, and others of the translated level, then their sons and daughters of the most high God. So sonship and daughtership, they, there's ascending categories of them. And never have I shown myself unto man whom I have created, for never has man believed in me as thou hast. Well, now this was before Abraham. Seest thou that you are created after my own image? Yet even all men were created in the beginning after my own image. Then why does Paul say that we need, we need to be recreated, as it were, in the image and likeness of God? If we're already in his image and likeness. It only says that of Adam and Eve and of Moses and of the brother Jared. So what's going on? Well, when you are recreated on higher and higher spiritual levels, eventually you do resemble God himself. Those who have seen those things see, have seen the that the sons and daughters of God are indistinguishable from him. Like Joseph Smith saw the father and the son. The son is an expressed image of the father. Eventually it comes to that. But we are not in his image and likeness, not until we attain that level. It doesn't say anywhere in the scriptures that we are in the image and likeness of God. Adam and Eve, Brother Jared, those and Moses, I mean. So it's, it's a goal, but we must achieve. I mean, think of the people on lower spiritual levels. Are they in the image and likeness of God? Of course not. They become decreated. They are less than what they were. But in the spirit, their spirits were in the image and likeness of God. Yes. As it says here, in the beginning. Created in the beginning. All men were created in the beginning after my own image. Now, spirits are in the image and likeness of God, but our whole goal and quest is to bring our spirits up, our bodies up to the, to the level of our spirits. Behold, this body which you now behold is the body of my spirit, the man that I created after the body of my spirit. And even as I appear unto thee to be in the spirit, will I appear unto my people in the flesh. That is, from the time that he came down to earth. Genesis 107. Three years previous to the death of Adam, he called Seth, Enos, Kainan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, and Methuselah, who were all high priests, with the residue of his posterity, who were righteous into the valley of Adam and Amun, and there bestowed upon them his last blessing. So these were his posterity who were righteous. The others were not called there, which is a type and shadow of our day when the, uh, of the end time meeting at Adam and Amun that's been prophesied. The Lord appeared to them, and they rose up and blessed Adam and called him Michael, 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 who is like God. The prince, the archangel, he was the prince of peace, um, Adam was, as Melchizedek was, as Abraham became. The archangel, 
And the Lord administered comfort unto Adam and said unto him, I have set thee to be at the head, a multitude of nations shall come of thee, and thou art a prince over them forever. These are the very same things that Abraham aspires to in the book of Abraham, where he desires to be a father of many nations, to be a prince of peace. And Adam stood up in the midst of the congregation, notwithstanding he was bowed down with age. Now, old was he? He was over 900 years old, right? Being full of the Holy Ghost, predicted whatsoever should befall his posterity unto the latest generation. And that's so classic of patriarchs and ancestors who administer blessings shortly before they pass on to their descendants. And for Moses, the victims of the probate price. The words of God which he spake unto Moses at a time when Moses was caught up into an exceedingly high mountain, or probably not on this earth, right? Like Nephi was caught up in an exceedingly high mountain. And he saw God face to face, and he talked with him, and the glory of, the, of God was upon Moses. Therefore Moses could endure his presence. So instead of being smitten or blinded or struck dumb, the Lord shed his glory upon him, and so he could endure his presence. And God spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, I am the Lord God Almighty, and endless is my name, or one of his names. For I am without beginning of days or end of years, and is not this endless? And you know, when we attain the fullness of the Melchizedek priesthood, we too become without beginning of days or end of years, because of the priesthood is that. And behold, thou art my son, wherefore, look, that I will show thee the workmanship of my hands, but not all, for my works are without end. So the Lord showed Moses only things pertaining to this earth, because there were so many earths, of course, that he couldn't show it. It was not relevant to Moses' ministry or Moses' life's work. And also my words, for they never cease. And of course, a big point of the, of the world today is that God has stopped speaking. He doesn't speak anymore. He's given his power to men. Therefore, no man can behold all my works except he behold all my glory, and no man can behold all my glory and afterwards remain in the flesh on the earth. When Isaiah ascended up to the seventh heaven, that's as far as he could go. It might be higher. He would have seen more, but then he couldn't have, he couldn't have come back to earth. Same here. And a work, I have a work for thee, Moses, my son. Thou art in the similitude of my only begotten, and my only begotten is and shall be the Savior, for he is full of grace and truth. So you see, the brother Jared and Moses are both on a transcendent level. They are in the image and likeness of God. Of them it said specifically, as well as of Adam and Eve. Who is full of grace and truth. Now how do we become full of grace and truth? You know, by living the truth and, and by submitting ourselves the process. All things are present with me, for I know them all. And now behold, this one thing I show unto thee, Moses, my son, for thou art in the world, and now I show it unto thee. And it came to pass that Moses looked and beheld the world upon which he was created, and Moses beheld the world and the ends thereof, and all the children of men which are and which were created are the same he greatly marveled and wondered. So he could see through God's eyes. And you can see every individual that ever was or ever would be pertaining to this earth. So he saw the end from the beginning. And that's what translated beings see. And the presence of God withdrew from Moses, and his glory was not upon Moses, and Moses was left unto himself. 
as he was left unto himself, he fell into the earth. I would like Lehi and others. It came to pass it was the space of many hours before Moses did again receive his natural strength, like unto man, and he said to himself, Now for this cause I know that man is nothing. Man of himself is nothing. Which thing I had never supposed. But now my own eyes have beheld God, but not my natural, but my spiritual eyes. For my natural eyes could not have beheld, or I should have withered and died in his presence. But his glory was upon me, and I beheld in his face, for I was transfigured before him. Moses 5. Adam and Eve, his wife, called upon the name of the Lord, and they heard the voice of the Lord from the way toward the Garden of Eden speaking unto them. So after they were cast out of the garden, they still hear the Lord's voice. And they saw him not, for they were shut out from his presence. And he gave unto them commandments of, that they should worship the Lord their God and should offer the first things of their flock, flock for an offering unto the Lord. And Adam was obedient unto the commandments of the Lord. And after many days, the angel of the Lord appeared unto Adam, saying, Why dost thou offer sacrifices unto the Lord? Adam said, I know not, say the Lord from Adam. So he's obedient to the commandment, and then, because he's obedient, he learns the answer. But the Israelites, Mount Sinai, said, We will do and we will hear, we'll understand. First comes the doing, and then comes the understanding of it. Without the doing, you'll never understand. It doesn't work that way. You may think you understand, but no. Then the angel speaks, saying, Listening is a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the Father, who is full of grace and truth. Wherefore thou shalt do all that thou doest in the name of the Son, because then you're doing it, you're doing his will, you do his will in the name of the Son, not in your own name, right? It's not your will. And thou shalt repent and call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. Call upon the Father in the name of Christ. And that day the Holy Ghost fell upon Adam, which bareth record of the Father and the Son, saying, I am the only begotten of the Father from the beginning, henceforth and forever that as thou hast fallen, thou mayest be redeemed, and all mankind, even as many as will. So he was shown the purpose of animal sacrifice, and that it was a type and shadow of the sacrifice, an innocent sacrifice of Christ. But of course no animal could atone for man, even under the law of Moses. It is still always just a foreshadowing of what Christ did. And that day Adam blessed God and was filled, and is filled with the Holy Ghost, like Lehi, and began to prophesy concerning all the families of the earth, saying, Blessed be the name of God, because of my transgressions my eyes are open, and in this life I shall have joy, and again in the flesh I shall see God. And Eve, his wife, heard all these things and was glad, saying, Were it not for our transgression, we never should have had seed, and never could have, should have known good and evil. And our joy of the joy of our redemption. Joseph Smith was a young 14-year-old. I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. That really expresses what an outpourers we should do is to express our desires to God. Because he has regard to our desires and he's so willing to answer them as soon as we're ready to receive the blessing. I had scarcely done so and immediately I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. Have you ever had that happen to you? Ever been held in, in, in the grip of an evil power? It's pretty scary. It's happened to me a lot over points in my life, or turning points in my life. I've been thrown on the floor and could
couldn't speak. And all I could do was what Jonah Smith did. I exerted all my strength and power to overcome. Thick darkness gathered around me and it seemed to me for a time as if I was doomed to some destruction. You really don't have power over this power, over this force. The only strength that you have is from the Lord to overcome it. But exerting all my powers to call upon God to deliver me out of the power of this enemy which had seized upon me, at the very moment when I was ready to sink into despair and abandon myself to destruction, not to an imaginary ruin, but to the power of some actual being from the unseen world, who had such marvelous powers as I never before felt in any being. Just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared that I found myself delivered from the enemy, which held me bound. And when the light rested upon me, I saw two persons whose brightness defied and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. And one of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved son, near him. Now, you know, in all the visions and things that we've read today, I've talked about, it's usually just the Lord, most the Lord God. And here we have two persons, one with the Father, one with the Son. Why, how do you explain that? Why wouldn't the Lord just come himself to Joseph Smith? And all the spiritual preparation and spiritual progress that a person makes comes into play here. And, and Isaiah and Nephi and Jacob and others in their youth see Jehovah. And they had not done nothing marvelous in their lives up to that point. They were very young. So how do you explain Jehovah coming to them and not say to old men? You know, it's very simple that the spiritual progress that they had made up to that point of their visions qualified them to be in the presence of, of the Lord. And by analogy with that, the same holds true for the prophet Joseph Smith, that his spiritual advancement had reached such a point that he, he qualified, he had as a right to enjoy the presence of the Father and the Son. You know what I'm saying? Not everybody, as far as I know, he's the, he's the only person that that early point in his life qualified to see the Father and the Son. Hear him. My object in going to the world was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself. It takes a while for him to collect himself so as to be able to speak. Then I asked the person who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right, for at this time it had never entered into my heart that all were wrong because of, because of this indoctrination. These Christians said they were teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, but a corrupted version of it, so they didn't think that it could all be wrong. But yes, they were, because they had taken many plain and precious parts out of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so it was only a story version. And many covenants of the Lord had they taken away, as, as Nephi said. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong, but the person who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight. Those professors were all corrupt. That they draw near me to kneel with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrine the commandments of men, or precepts of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Part of that is from Isaiah, and Paul quotes it as well. Now think of this that 2 Nephi 28, as we read, talks about precepts of men in Abbe, among us, people in Zion. So much so that in the end we end up denying Christ as God revealed more truth 
we become conditioned to rejecting it until finally when reveals a big truth, we reject that also and end up denying it. Us. So, are we repeating this scenario here in that case? And is Joseph Smith a type, perhaps, of a servant coming? He's asking some questions. He again forbade me to join with any of them, and many other things did he say to me, which I cannot write at this time. When I came to myself again, I found myself lying on my back, looking up into heaven. When the light had departed, I had no strength. Not like Moses and others, but soon recovering in some degree, I went home. Now we have spent this vision, visions of glory, of the Savior. This, you know, this is probably the most explicit one that, out of all of these. In a way, the most beautiful. Here we're given, we're given great details about how a person feels when they encounter the Lord. He says, the first time he's experienced without having to die, the others he was clinically dead. <laughs> Poor guy. I was sleeping, but it was not a dream. I was not seeing it, but rather I was present in the vision, experiencing it with my five senses. Have you ever had that? It really does feel very real. The term Paul used to explain such an experience was whether in the body or out of the body, I know not. It was exactly that real to me and that difficult to tell if I was once again out of my body or experiencing it in the flesh. But all five senses are operating. It was about 4 a.m. by the time I got to bed that night, I'd been completing some important work and I lost track of time. I was exhausted as I lay down after saying my prayers and fell into a very deep sleep. So he is deeply exhausted. Keep that in mind. My first recollection was that I was hurrying from the parking lot toward the state center where I'd been assigned to speak. It was the same building I attended every Sunday for years. In my mind, I was late for a leadership meeting and was never rushing into the building. I was halfway up the walk on the back side of the church when I heard Spencer. The voice was familiar to me and I turned around to see who had spoken my name. I was astonished to see Jesus Christ standing in the parking lot where the sidewalk begins. I knew his face. I had never seen him before in mortality, yet I knew him. And I assure you that it's the same for all of us. All I can tell you is that his face is the most familiar face in the universe because of his complete manifold interactions with us long before we came here. My spirit instantly knew him, remembered him, and loved him. I remembered everything about him, everything he had done for me. And might say for us, each one of us, put yourself in his place. Because the Lord will do this for us just as soon as we're ready. I felt to my soul as if I was seeing my most beloved friend for the first time after decades of absence. I felt my heart racing in my chest. He did not introduce himself because I recognized him immediately. He communicated with me verbally, but every word he spoke was rich with nonverbal truth that entered my soul faster than words. So it's again, it's like this download of truth, like the book that Father Levi eats. He was wearing a vibrant red robe which hung across his right shoulder and was tied up with a clasp on his left shoulder. He wore a cloth belt of the same color about his waist. But I guess, you know, he comes in different attires according to the need or the message he's trying to con convey. Any situation. He wore a cloth of belt, cloth belt of the same color that his robe. The robe hung to his ankles and hands and had long sleeves. He wore old time sandals on his feet. 
He was tall, possibly a little over six feet. Well, Spencer's tall, too. His form was masculine. He had a sturdy build with big shoulders and strong limbs. But there's a beautiful description of him. Probably stood head and shoulders above other Jews in his day. His face was not thin, as is depicted in some paintings, but full with high cheekbones. He had a dark beard that was closely trimmed. Look at that, he used a trimmer. His hair was the color of his beard, it's dark, and was long enough to touch his shoulders. Well, that wouldn't be politically correct nowadays, would it? His eyes were the most beautiful and clearest blue one can imagine. He smiled at me, and I dropped to my dropped my briefcase and ran to him. His arms engulfed me. I can't find words to explain how it felt to be embraced by him. A flood of memories returned of being comfortable in his arms long before. I felt his love for me radiating from him. I knew by instinct that he knew everything about me. Yet there was no sense of judgment. I felt from him a complete sense of his confidence in me in my capacity. And I assure you that's exactly how it is. When God manifests himself to you, there's no judgment. He totally accepts you for who you are on the level that you are at. It was amazing to me because I've never had a lot of confidence in myself. I didn't look for the marks on his hands and feet. I don't know why I didn't look. Even today, I remember thinking later that day, why didn't I look? Perhaps it was because I did not need to see his wounds to know it was him. I was so taken by his love, his power, and radiance, unlimited capacity, vast knowledge and perfections that have never entered my mind to look. Think about the things he's saying, these words, these are his words, but his power, his love, his power, and radiance, unlimited capacity, vast knowledge, perfections. When did he attain these perfections? Just in one lifetime? That it never entered my mind to look. His feet were not on the ground. But under him was a pavement, it's sapphire and similar, perhaps, and the vision of Moses and the elders of Israel on Mount Sinai. I was surprised how he could hold me with such firmness. He was standing, not floating, but he was not standing upon our mortal world. He was not occupying the same space that I was on this planet. In that space that he was occupying, everything was radiating from him as if he were the sun, everything rotated around him, it came from him. So he was in a world apart from us, and everything in that world was looking to him as it were. And he was radiating his love and his power and all these attributes, divine attributes, to that world, to people in that world. Even as he was speaking with Spencer. His face was welcoming, smiling, pleased to be with me. It felt like we had embraced like this often before, which surprised me. My family is not huggy, and I've never learned to enjoy long or emotional hugging. Yet no. in this embrace, I wished that he'd walk forever. After a long while, he put his hands on my shoulders and pushed me gently to arm's length. He looked me in the eye and told me he was pleased with my life thus far. He thanked me earnestly for my service in his name thus far. He told me that he loved me and that from this time forward, I would do much good for the kingdom. Well, I would say that with the publication of his book, and he's already done considerable of this promise. He paused for a second and added that the righteous desire of my heart would be granted. See, there you go. See, he's always willing to fulfill the righteous desires of our heart. I knew exactly which desire he meant. It was my great desire that I should truly rise to endure my future trials well 
and thereby be purified or sanctified. Little did I know that there was so much more to righteous desire than I could possibly perceive at that time. After years passed, I learned many more things I firmly desired to do. So as you progress spiritually, your desires increase exponentially. Like Daniel was called, Daniel, I believe, was a translator of the Ian. He was called a man of desires by the angel who met him. So the desires are good. Why should we have no desires? As the years passed, I learned many more things I firmly desired to do, that all of them became the richest longings of my heart, all of them falling within the promise I had just heard. So, sure, have rich longings of the heart. And see them fulfilled through time. What will do that for you? No one is excluded from this. We should foster these desires. They're righteous. And verbalize them and ask for them to be fulfilled. He again said, Spencer, and for a moment I saw myself as he sees me and knew myself as he knows me. That's the scripture, other places, speaks of to be known as we are known. As I mentioned earlier, to God and angels, someone's name is a spiritual container for everything that can be known about a person. It's like the computer chip. Only that's the counterfeit, right? Past, present, and future. In that moment, he spoke my name. I was given to see and feel the full meaning of my name to him. It melted my heart and still does to this day every time I think of how he said my name. Which should inspire us that when we use other people's names, what should we have, what attitude should we have about such a person? See the potential in them and instill confidence in them when they use their names and honor them for their name and who they are as a child of God. The love he bestowed upon me in that one word cannot be described in any human language. How we can learn from this? This is an amazing object lesson. So when I read Isaiah or Samuel where the Lord speaks their names, or where the Lord calls Nephi or Moses by their name, I believe I know what they felt. Which is not in the scriptures that we just read, but he's giving us a clue what they must have felt, right? When I read of the first vision and hear Joseph, this is my beloved son, I wish everyone could know what young Joseph experienced when he heard the Lord say his name. Because when you hear your name from the lips of your Savior, you never again hear your name the same way, ever. Since that time when people say my name who don't really know who I am, it almost feels as if they are treading on sacred things. It also makes me marvel at the many names Jesus Christ has in the scriptures. Because each name and each title bears with it some unspeakable language, which contains the full and true meaning of that part of the Lord's glory and perfections. Has anybody counted the names of the Lord in the scripture? There are at least 40 of them, I mean. And each one expresses some aspect of his attributes, divine attributes, and perfections. What is a perfection? It means that you acquire a virtue or some attribute in its perfect form, its perfect form, or you work at it until it becomes a perfect thing, until that attribute is perfect in you. Your love is perfect, your understanding is perfect, your wisdom is perfect, your speech is perfect. And these are all perfections, and the Lord had them all. That's why he could be our Savior. He had no sin or transgression in him. 
in the few long seconds that he held me, Jesus taught me many things which entered my soul as a burst of pure knowledge, or like a download, as I mentioned earlier. These were precious spiritually intimate things, all of which thrilled me to the center of my being, but which was, I was not allowed to remember in detail after the experience ended. You know they're there, you know they exist, you know they're operating in you, but they're withheld from you because we have to walk by faith in the Lord. I only remember receiving those things and rejoicing, but the details have evaporated. I hope in a future day to hear me speak them all again, well, just to hold them again and have them back. He nodded toward the stake center and said, you are needed, you need to go to your assignment. I took a step back, still looking at him, wishing I did not have to leave, but he had instructed me to go, and I turned and took a few steps away. I stopped and turned back, he again spoke my name, and I was again engulfed in love and tears. You can't help but tears, but tears flow. As I watched, he began to fade slowly, then he was gone. I immediately became aware of my bed and bedroom. I was weeping openly, joyfully, in a way I'd never before experienced. It's to the bottom of your soul. The joy of this vision was so supernal that I was rejuvenated and sleep left me. Of course, he had gone to bed at 4 o'clock. He was rejuvenated through the vision. I immediately got up and wrote all of this down in my journal. The morning finally came, so that I could hardly have gotten any sleep. I dressed and proceeded with my day without any trace of fatigue or sleepiness. I read my journal from time to time now, and I see the profound incapacity I had at that time to be able to express this, this experience in words. Even today, it is still very clear that there may not even be words to express such an experience. I remember pondering it the next day. I opened the hymnal and read the words, I know that my Redeemer lives. The words of that hymn express better what I experienced than my own words could at that time. To really know that he lives, that he is perfect, a perfect benevolent friend who loves me enough to leave the heavens, come to earth and take the time to embrace me, to have a relationship with me. With me? Yeah, of course, with any one of us. And with all of us who seek him, this is the sweetest knowledge I've ever known. To know that he knows you far better than you know yourself, and yet he loves you better still, and is willing to show you who you are in his sight and what you're capable of. This is why I love him so, because he first loved me. So he first loved us and infused us with his love, then we're able to love him back. Because love all comes from God. God is love. He's the God of love. What does calling upon the name of the Lord mean or by it, right? It's Marianne's question. And, and the Jews have this tradition that once a year the high priests went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and pronounced the name of Jehovah. In its correct pronunciation, it's not Jehovah, it's not Yahweh, it's not any of those attempts, those four attempts at expressing his name. The only time that I've really heard it Almost perfect was in a Native American town. It's in a CD called Sacred, Sacred something. And I heard a Native American elder pronounce it in the middle of a very sacred chant. Sacred Spirit is the name of the CD. 
And when you would pronounce the name of the Holy of Holies, the Lord would appear. And if the priest was not worthy to be in the presence of the Lord, he would die on the spot. And toward the end of the Second Temple period, they tied a rope to the ankle of the high priest on the Day of Atonement as he went in, and he would die and pull him out by the rope. They pulled out. It shows you that the name, that's why the angel said, why do you ask my name? I don't want to give you my name. It's, you have power over me, right? You have to come when you call me. And then, yeah, there are instances of the name. If you know the name, then you have power with God. And, and he can reveal you his name if he wants, or a name. But that's calling upon the name of the Lord seems to be seems to be able to bring him present. Uh, there's something similar in the Temple of Endowment, right? Not quite, but something similar. So it is part of our personal journey that these things are revealed to you as as you need them. That answer your question. This concludes Lecture 23, Visions of God. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliadi.